The New York Times, yeah. this past Sunday, there was an article about the first black punk rock group called Death in the 70s, and they found these old recordings. I was just trying to, I was trying to create an idea of how to expand rock. My name is Henry Rollins. Henry, I think I know you. Oh, I see. You're a character now. I, well, I just do whatever I feel. You are gonna make me scream like a white lady. <laughs> Woo! Shut up. What's up, music nerds? This is Deep Tracks, and here is your host. That every day is leg day in colors. That's right, Your Majesty. Every day is leg day. Okay, so obviously I was recently playing around with one of those AI celebrity voice things. But uh, moving on, we have a lot to get into in this episode. So without further ado, let's dive into Bill Haley. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock. That's right. At long last, we get to talk about one of the most underrated of rock music's pioneers, Bill Haley. And we're going to kick off our Bill Haley episode with a sort of unique ludicrous lyrics segment. Now, as my regular listeners know, ludicrous lyrics is where I share, you know, funny stories of misheard or misunderstood lyrics that people share with me. But for today's ludicrous lyrics, I've decided to borrow from the Bill Haley fan Facebook group known as the International Razor Bunnies. You might be wondering why on earth a Bill Haley Facebook group has a name involving shaving implements and members of the genus Leporidae. Yes, I had to Google the genus for rabbit. Uh, well, here's what happened. One of the group's founders misheard a line from Bill Haley's song, Rockin' Through the Rye. And this is where I'll quote from their homepage. We got our name as a result of Alex mishearing a lyric from Rockin' Through the Rye, where it goes, Maxwell Town's Braze Are Bonnie. He heard it as Max Welchin's Razor Bunny. Max Welchin's Razor Bunny. We are the Razor Bunnies, but we don't know who Max Welchin is. I love it. Uh, there may not be a Max Welchin out there, but I, I sort of want to start a rock band now called the Razor Bunnies. Or maybe Max Welchin could be my stage name and we'd be called Max Welchin and the Razor Bunnies. I don't know. The possibilities are endless. Either way, I'd probably have to share the royalties on all my hit songs with the Facebook group. So maybe I'd change it to like a knockoff name like Wax Melchin and the Sharp-Edged Rabbits. Yeah, that's so much better. Uh, anyway, the, the way I discovered the International Razor Bunnies is an interesting story in itself. While I was doing research for my Bill Haley episode, I had purchased a biography written about him by his son, Bill Haley Jr., entitled Crazy Man Crazy, after one of Bill Haley's song titles. In the book's introduction, Bill Jr. gives a shout-out to a Facebook group that helped him in doing research for his book on his dad, and that group was none other than the International Razor Bunnies. I was intrigued in that this was the first time I had ever seen a Facebook page credited in a book as a helpful research resource. So I reached out to the group asking to join, and they were kind enough to let me in, and I, I soon realized why they were such an invaluable resource for Bill Jr. I decided to take a leap and post a request for anyone interested in doing an interview for a podcast episode about the life and music of Bill Haley. Now, I, I shouldn't have been surprised at the response I got, but nevertheless, I was gratified at the overwhelming willingness of members to offer their knowledge and passion to, you know, some rando newbie who just popped up in the ranks. <laughs> I had so many people reach out to me, in fact, that I had to turn several people down. But there are three interviews to come out of these Facebook exchanges that I will be incorporating into this podcast. Uh, two of them will actually be a little further down the road, uh, one of which will be with author and rock historian Otto Martin Fuchs, and will probably cover a plethora of topics. The other one that'll be down the road, uh, specifically when we get to the late 50s, early 60s, probably, is uh, Stephen Clark Harvey 
who for a time studied guitar with John Kay, or Johnny Kay as his name often appeared. And John Kay was one of Bill Haley's guitarists throughout the 60s, and Steve has a lot of great stories to share that John shared with him during their guitar lessons. But a lot of that material entails Bill's later life and career, um, plus even like some great anecdotes about the Beatles. So that's the reason I, I, I want to save that interview for um, when we close out the 1950s. Uh, but finally, the last interview, which will be a standalone, uh, actually two standalone episodes after this episode, is one that I'm, I have to admit I am particularly excited about. So as I said, when I, I had put that post to that Facebook group, I had quite a few people reach out to me. But one of the names I hadn't expected to see pop up in my messenger inbox was Bill Haley Jr., so when it did, I actually paused for a moment before opening it because, you know, the, the imposter syndrome in me feared his message would be something like, you are not worthy to speak of my father. Be gone from this group. But I finally got the nerve to open it and was pleased to find that he was graciously offering to share his own knowledge of his dad's life, career, and music. It was an amazing interview. And even after editing, editing it down a bit, I can't say the word editing, uh, it, it still ended up being about two hours of material. So uh, the next two episodes will be much longer than my usual ones. Uh, in fact, they'll be an hour each. Um, but it was just it was just so much great content that I, I couldn't bring myself to edit anything else out. Uh, now, that being said, this episode will serve as kind of an overview of Bill Sr.'s life, as well as a sort of primer for my interview with Bill Jr., which was not only a journey through the life and career of the man who was arguably the first ever rock star, but it was also, quite frankly, a story of a father-son relationship that, you know, with such relationships being naturally complicated enough in normal circumstances, became even more so with the specter of fame and celebrity hovering over the whole thing. Bill Jr.'s candor about his dad and the relationship is both surprising and inspiring. Like, the, the dude's been through a lot. Uh, I should also note that most of my quotes in this episode are pulled from Bill Jr.'s book, uh, and I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. All right, but anyway, here we go. Bill Haley, whose full name is William John Clifton Haley, was born in a second-floor apartment in Highland Park, Michigan, on July 6th, 1925. Now, if you've ever seen a picture of Bill Haley, you'll notice he has what appears to be a lazy eye. This is because in 1929, a Detroit doctor performed a crude operation to remove a mastoid behind four-year-old Bill's left ear and mistakenly severed the boy's optic nerve, leaving him blind in his left eye for the rest of his days. It was bad enough that this meant Bill would always be the last one picked for any schoolyard sports teams, you know, but... Uh, as Bill Jr. points out, this would be the source of some bullying. Because Bill's eyes seemed to move independently of each other, some of the other kids called him frog eyes. But I do love what Bill Jr. says next. Perhaps Bill's memory of this slight caused him to write the line, I got legs like a rooster, eyes like a frog, in the later hit song, Hot Dog Buddy Buddy. When Bill was 13, his parents gave him a guitar for his birthday, and his dad taught him to play it by ear. Bill had musically gifted parents. His dad played, you know, just about anything with strings, but mostly the mandolin. And his mom, who hailed from Britain, played the piano. And true to his musical genes, Bill was soon playing guitar and singing like one of his childhood musical cowboy heroes, Gene Autry. And yes, we briefly covered Gene Autry way back in episode 1.4, Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys. When he was 16, Bill completed 10th grade but did not return for 11th or 12th grade opting instead to go to work driving trucks and other manual jobs. I mean, the kid was 6'1 and weighed 175 pounds, so he was definitely built for manual labor. But the funny thing is, 
he never saw himself that way, you know, as a as a manual laborer. As Bill Jr. points out, he began telling his girlfriends he wanted to become someone important. He even entered a local talent contest, but he cracked his guitar in a bike crash that happened on the day of the contest and ended up doing so badly that he didn't play in front of anyone except family and friends for the next two years. Bill's childhood status as something of an outsider wouldn't quite leave him in his adult years. Uh, after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, he tried joining the military, even lying about his age in order to do so. But because of his poor eyesight, he was rejected. However, that didn't stop people from casting judgmental looks or comments at him as they saw what appeared to be a perfectly healthy young man walking around while the rest of the town's young men were off to war. But for Bill, I think this was just another thing that spurred him into wanting to make something of himself. In fact, a lot of Bill's life was spent in an effort to make people notice him, respect him, while at the same time often deflecting attention and shying away from the spotlight. He was a complex guy, as we'll soon see. Anyway, this was a difficult time for Haley. As Bill Jr. put it, he still felt he was going nowhere, not physically qualified to serve, but too shy to sing in public. But Bill was about to get a gentle kick in the pants that would help him regain his confidence. In 1943, he was offered a regular gig performing music at Booth's Corner Sale, which was a local outdoor auction market near Bill's home. A year later, and Bill was a full-fledged performer, leaning hard into his country-western influences. He had an outfit just for shows, a white cowboy hat and bright red cowboy suit with white fringe, and he had also learned to yodel. This is also about the time that Bill would start to develop what would eventually become part of his shtick, which was on-stage shenanigans to accompany the music. You all might remember me mentioning a few episodes back the rockabilly band Reverend Horton Heat and their practice of the bassist uh, laying his instrument down on its side while still playing it, and then the guitarist standing on top of it while shredding you know, some epic guitar solo on his Gretsch. What I didn't mention at that time uh, was that um, you know, that rockabilly band was continuing a tradition that had been around since the first rockabilly artist, namely Bill Haley. But at this point, Bill wasn't rockabilly yet. He was just hillbilly. The way things started, though, um, was that he had a joke-cracking fiddler named Pop Guthrie who'd add cornball humor to Bill's musical act. Guthrie became such an attraction that even after Bill had become king of rock and roll, Bill had kept adding vaudeville-style slapstick humor to his and his band's performances. Many of Bill's big-time concerts were highlighted by band members who routinely split their pants on stage on purpose, rode their bass fiddles like horses, continuing to play those huge, heavy instruments while carrying them above their heads or lying on their backs. Having made quite a name for himself locally, Bill was eventually offered full-time employment as part of a seven-member hillbilly music band called Cousin Lee and His Boys. This gig allowed him to mix and mingle with other artists, including more of his musical heroes, the most prominent being Hank Williams himself. So borrowing again from Bill Jr. Some years later, Bill told an interviewer that Hank had taught him a few chords and influenced him. Then quoting what Bill said about Hank, He was a great blues singer and he stimulated my interest in R&B music, race music as it was called then. It was during this time performing with Cousin Lee that Bill also met who would become his first wife, Dorothy, or Dottie, Crow. In 1945, his then-girlfriend, Dottie, told him about an ad in Billboard magazine for a lead singer and yodeler for a popular country western band run by a guy named Shorty Cook called the Down Homers. This meant moving to Fort Wayne, Indiana, which meant his and Dottie's relationship would enter that dreaded status known as long distance, or I guess as it would have been known on Facebook a few years ago, complicated. But she had total faith in his ability to become successful and even loaned him some money that he needed in order to make the move. Uh, but uh, upon arrival in Fort Wayne, 
Bill not only had to spend several hours waiting at the train station for pickup because uh, the down-homers had thought they'd hired a much older yodeler also named Bill Haley, and in an exchange reminiscent of the scene in The Office where Michael Scott first meets Will Ferrell's character in the hotel bar. I'm at the, the bar, the bar that's located in the lobby of the hotel. I do not see you. How long have you... I've been here about, gosh... Over half an hour. Okay, yeah, me too. They eventually realized he was this young kid standing right there in front of them the whole time. Um, but also, Bill learned at this time that in order to qualify for the band, he also had to learn how to play stand-up bass. So this is where Bill's natural prowess as a musician shines through, as he was able to pick it up pretty quickly. And in fact, it's a skill that would stay with him even years later. I mean, you can watch some of the comments shows on YouTube and you'll see him swap out with the bassist every once in a while in order to allow the bassist a moment as the front man of the group. It was during this time as one of Shorty Cook's down homers that Bill co-wrote his first published song, which was a cowboy ballad called Four Leaf Clover Blues. However, Bill's time with the down homers would come to an awkward crossroads just a few months after joining them. You see, he'd originally been hired on to replace the band's original singer, Kenny Roberts, who'd joined the Navy and had been deployed. However, after receiving an early discharge, Kenny was back and ready to resume his place as the frontman for the Down Homers. So this meant shoving Bill aside to be one of the backing musicians in the group, and Bill knew that wasn't a way to get rich and famous playing for someone else's band. So as Bill Jr. put it, he hatched a plan to jump ship. After all, He'd promised Dottie he was going to be a star, not a hired band hand. Taking two other members of the group with him, and thereby infuriating Shorty, he signed on a fourth musician. The new band then migrated to station WKNE in Keene, New Hampshire, where they appropriately dubbed themselves the Range Drifters. So they started traveling all over the place doing shows, and Bill Jr. says of this time, Although Bill may not have realized it at the time, this was a turning point in his career. In Chicago, New Orleans, St. Louis, and East St. Louis, he heard a lot of sounds he'd never heard before. Jazz music, Lena Horne tunes, and the music and melodies played by black Americans. And this is where Bill began seeing the possibilities presented by cross-pollinating musical pollen from one musical flower to another. Yeah, that, that analogy holds up, right? I mean, it even gives you like the mental image of Bill Haley in a little bee outfit buzzing around. Okay, okay, I'll stop. Uh, Bill Jr. mentions here at this point in his dad's story that while imagining the ways in which these various musical styles could be combined with his native musical language, he began nurturing another objective, to bring dance music back into vogue. That goal wouldn't be met with the range drifters, though. By the spring of 1946, they were essentially living off of canned beans and black coffee, sleeping in their cars or in cheap motel rooms that would make even the bedbugs think twice about staying the night. The group's financial struggles led to constant arguing, and this led to Bill quitting the group. He eventually ended up back at his parents' house in Pennsylvania, flat broke, and thus far, a failure as a musician. Returning home would present some new opportunities, however. Wayne Wright, uh, who taught Bill how to DJ in New Jersey a couple years earlier, was able to get Bill another job as a DJ at WKNE in Keene, New Hampshire. For $30 a week, he spun tunes, played his guitar, sang solo, read news and commercials, and performed on air with the Range Drifters with whom he'd been able to more or less patch things up. However, this is also where Bill's life would take a surprising turn. You see, during his time when he'd first returned to his parents' place, he'd been in a bit of a funk, uh, understandably. He was able to reconnect with Dottie, who'd remained dedicated to the relationship even after not seeing him for months at a time. Um, This reconnecting and getting Bill out of his mild depression would have unexpected consequences, though. 
You see, soon after moving to Keene for his DJ gig, Bill received a letter from his sister informing him that his girlfriend was pregnant. Bill did what he felt was the right thing and brought Dottie out there to New Hampshire and married her. The wedding was performed by a justice of the peace in Battleboro, Vermont, which is apparently near Keene, New Hampshire, I guess. Seriously, as someone who spent his whole life living in California and Hawaii, it's weird for me to hear stories where interstate travel is like akin to heading to the next town over. Uh, anyway, the wedding took place on December 11th in 1946. They were both 21. It, uh, it wasn't an easy marriage, as any marriage by necessity tends to be. It wasn't helped by the fact that their lives rarely intersected. Dottie had a day job and Bill had a night job. So they were basically the proverbial ships passing in the night. Nevertheless, with a baby on the way, Bill became more motivated than ever. Having reunited with the Range Drifters, Bill and his band and his wife all relocated to Hartford, Connecticut in May of 1947 in order to work at WLBR in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. So he was living in Connecticut, but working in Pennsylvania. Again, it's bizarre for me to hear of someone living in one state and working in another like it's nothing. As a San Diegan, working in the next state over would mean a round trip of at least five hours. And when I lived in Honolulu, the next state over was, you know, a four to five hour flight. Uh, in fact, as a San Diegan, it's a shorter commute for me to leave the country than it is to visit another state. Anyway, this has nothing to do with Bill Haley's story. I'm just always really amazed at how small those New England states are. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah. Radio job at WLBR. Bill wouldn't be there for long because in October of 47, he learned about an opening at WPWA, a new station in Chester, Pennsylvania, which was a lot closer to Bill's old stomping grounds and his parents' house. So the very next month, in November of 47, Bill was hired on not only as a DJ, but also the station's record librarian, custodian, ad salesman, newscaster, announcer, and host of the station's Ladies' Aid program. I don't know why, but I just love imagining rock pioneer Bill Haley hosting a program called Ladies' Aid. Like, you know, the guests are all talking about things like hair and cleaning products Well. Poor Bill is just itching to run into the other room and play his guitar. Anyway, much of this period is covered in my interview with Bill Jr., so I'll skip ahead in just a moment. Before I do, though, um, there's an important part of Bill's story that's also taking place at this time as he's working at the radio station by day and playing gigs and clubs at night. As Bill Jr. put it in his book, Bill often ignored Dottie and his daughter Sharon, even though they frequently went hungry. His priority was his career, which trumped playing an active role in raising his daughter. By contrast, Dottie, the product of divorced parents, wanted a stable, emotionally involved family, not one headed by a husband driven to work endless hours in pursuit of money and fame. What was worse, it wasn't unusual for Dottie to see Bill pull up outside their apartment and turn out the headlights of his car, after which she could see him fooling around with another woman, usually girls he picked up at one of his shows. But Dottie was afraid of being left alone to make her way as a single mother, so... She never confronted her husband about what she knew was going on. That is, until mid-1949 when she just couldn't take it anymore and moved back in with her dad in Salem, New Jersey. This is where Bill, for the first time, but not the last time in his life, would turn to alcohol as an escape to assuage his guilt. Um, the next part of Bill's story is when he formed a group called the Saddlemen, which would essentially be the building blocks for what would eventually be called the Comets. But that's also covered in my interview with Bill Jr., so I, I do want to jump ahead again. But before I do, I wanted to point out a couple things about one of their musical innovations as a group. They had started implementing slapback playing with the stand-up bass in order to make up for the lack of a percussion section. 
a practice that would likewise become a staple part of much of the music produced by Sam Phillips' Sun Studios and, by extension, also come to define rockabilly music as a genre. Now, they weren't the ones to invent slapback playing, of course, but it's interesting how, even to this day, just about any rockabilly band out there that uses a stand-up bass, which most of them do, plays with this same slapback technique. But okay, moving on. In 1950, during a period of reconciliation between Bill and Dottie, a second child, a son, was born and conceived. Or, I mean, well, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> Uh, this firstborn son, however, would not bear the name of his father, as Bill's mother had wanted, but rather was named Jack, after Bill's close friend and business associate, Jack Howard. And there's a reason for this, and that's something else that I talk about in my interview with Bill Jr. Um, it was during the Saddleman's shows that Bill noticed a girl who would come to every show, sit as close to the front as she could, and they would make frequent eye contact. This girl was able to communicate her interest in Bill enough that he was able to overcome his usual shyness and approach her during one of uh, one of his breaks. This girl's name was Joan Barbara Kupchak, but everyone called her Cuppy. Or maybe her last name's pronounced Kupchak. Kupchak? Kupchak? That's a question I should have asked Bill Jr. Anyway, uh, my point is, with all of this, we have just met the person who will be Bill's second wife. She would also eventually be Bill Jr.'s mom. When Bill and Cuppy began dating, it was once again during a period of separation between Bill and Dottie. Uh, but as, and as their relationship grew more serious, Bill actually asked Dottie for a divorce, which she agreed to, allowing him to marry Dottie. Now, I mean, oh my gosh, okay. When Bill and Cuppy began dating, it was once again during a period of separation between Bill and Dottie. As their relationship grew more serious, Bill asked Dottie for a divorce, when Bill and Cuppy began dating, it was once again during a period of separation between Bill and Dottie. As their relationship grew more serious, Bill asked Dottie for a divorce, which she agreed to, and thus allowing him to marry uh, Cuppy. First try. Um, Cuppy was different than Dottie. Dottie, as I understand it, had a more passive personality. But Cuppy, on the other hand, would stand up to Bill and call him out whenever she felt he wasn't treating her right. What's funny about this, though, is there are a bunch of Bill Haley songs that he wrote because of arguments he got into with Cuppy. You know, either inspired by those arguments or simply just trying to say he was sorry and make up for whatever it was he'd done to make her so mad. So in that indirect sort of way, we have Cuppy to thank for some of Bill Haley's catalog. I will add also that the material in Bill Jr.'s book that I can tell he got from his mom is some of my favorite material. You see, um, when Dottie was Bill's wife, it was basically while he was, you know, like still a small fry trying to make it big. But, but Cuppy, when she would come into the picture, um, she happened to meet and marry Bill right before his career blew up. And, uh, you know, and then he briefly entered the realm of superstar status. So it was during that time in Bill's life, while he was married to Cuppy, that he was mingling with a lot of other celebrities. And, and what's funny is, I don't know, a lot of them seemed like kind of intrigued by Cuppy and would open up to her about all kinds of stuff. So that's kind of a fun little unexpected side treat from Bill Jr.'s book is not only all the stuff about his dad's career, of course, but all of the juicy little anecdotes uh, that his mom passed down from her interactions with celebrities of the 1950s. Uh, and that being said, 
And Bill's ascendancy into fame is something else I discussed with Bill Jr. in my interview. So that is something else I'm not going to dive too much into here. Something I should point out, though, is that Bill's rise to stardom would precede most of the other rock pioneers we've discussed so far. It would precede Little Richard, it would precede Chuck Berry, and it would even precede Fats Domino. So like I said, in the beginning of this episode, he is arguably the world's first rock star. Before Elvis, he was being mauled by women and envied by men. And before Beatlemania, he was being thronged by teens in Britain. You all might remember uh, our discussion of the movie Blackboard Jungle in episode 2.1 and the rioting that took place at the movie theaters when teens heard rock music on the soundtrack of a movie. And this, of course, was a moment that the comments would enter the stratosphere. I mean, as in going up to the stratosphere, because I guess comments are usually coming down through the stratosphere. Whatever. You know what I mean. Bill Haley and his comments would go on to perform in many of Alan Freed's rock shows that he put on which we'll be talking more about that when we discuss Alan Freed a few episodes from now, as well as have bit parts in a bunch of rock music-themed movies that would come out in the 1950s. And as I mentioned before, I'll be doing an episode that is simply dedicated to these movies, so that's another part of Bill's life we'll be circling back to. Another thing I should mention before we wrap this up is uh, the Comets, as a group, were sort of an interesting animal. They didn't follow the sort of frontman and backing band model. Neither did they follow the band leader model of, you know, like the big bands a generation before. Instead, they had two classifications for their members. There were what were called the partners, who were the core members of the group. These were Bill Haley, of course, along with lap steel guitarist Bill Williamson, band manager Lord Jim Ferguson, and pianist and accordionist Johnny Grande. And these guys had a cut of the band's earnings, making more or less, you know, depending on how well things were going, which... When they were going well, these guys were raking it in. Meanwhile, the other members of the group, people like guitarists uh, Franny Beecher and John Kay, and I believe saxophonist Rudy Pompili fell into this category, at least for most of his time with the Comets. Anyway, all of the guys who weren't one of the partners, um, they received a flat rate for their pay. So if a song was doing really well, the partners would be getting you know percentages on those sales. But the non-partners wouldn't make anything beyond what they'd made when first recording in the studio. This would lead to some contention in the group down the road, but it was nevertheless a model that Bill stuck to for almost the entire life of the band. I had also mentioned earlier that Bill briefly struggled with alcohol dependency during his first separation with Dottie. After coming out of that period of his life, he rarely drank outside of social occasions. That is, until his tour in Britain. As you'll hear in my interview with Bill Jr., that would be where he'd pick up a taste for Johnny Walker Scotch. And from there on out, his dependency on alcohol not only returned, but evolved into full-blown alcoholism, especially after his career began to decline as he found himself in the shadow of Elvis and other later rockers like Jerry Lee Lewis and Buddy Holly. Anyway, uh, that's my overview slash primer on Bill Haley and his comments. The next two episodes will be my interview with his son, Bill Haley Jr., broken into two parts. After that, we'll look at the life and career of early rock's most famous and infamous DJ, Alan Freed, the man credited with naming the music rock and roll, after which we'll look at those rock-themed movies I mentioned earlier, followed by, well, just stick around and you'll see. It's a lot of great material coming up, and I'm super excited to share it. So, until next time, keep it deep. I hope you enjoyed this Delphi Cool episode of the most coolest rock history podcast of all time. Follow me on Instagram. It's not a tumor.